0: This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser.
1: And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance.
0: And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries.
1: You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio.
0: All right, everybody. Among his past responsibilities, former Democratic senator from the state of Montana, former ambassador to China under President Obama, and also former chairman of the Senate Committee on Finance, former chairman of the Joint Committee on Taxation. So there's so much we can talk about uh, with him. Max Bach is back with us on the phone from Washington, D.C., Ambassador Baucus, nice to have you back with us. Crazy news flow today. And I do need to address some of that with you because I am curious about your thoughts. Former National Security Advisor under President Obama, I mean, President uh, Trump, Michael Flynn pleading guilty to lying to federal agents about contact with Russia's ambassador during the Trump transition. Um, Your assessment of that news?
2: Yeah, well, it's uh, quite significant for a couple of reasons. Number one. Clearly, this is no longer a witch hunt. That is, those who are investigating Russian influence in the United States elections are with the um, Trump administration. This is real. Flynn, national security advisor, entered a guilty plea. Um, That shows that uh, there's meat on these bones. Second, um, it shows that, um, I think it shows that Mueller is starting to um, um, begin a very sweeping investigation Federal investigators are very thorough, and they're very good, and Mueller is a very much a professional. Um, Flynn, in order to be guilty and for Mueller to accept that guilty plea, Mueller had to get a lot of information by Michael Flynn, sworn under oath. And, and Mueller's going to use that, obviously, on down the road. So, number one, it's significant because it's not a witch hunt. It's real. And number two, this is the beginning.
1: So t- to that, I mean, uh, part of this is you know, that what we learned today happened between the uh, election and before the inauguration. Um, it seems to me that that makes, you know, so as, as, as uh, Senator Feinstein said, said it, uh, we know that Russians interfered with the election to try to help elect President Trump. I'm paraphrasing. And now we know that the Russians had communications uh, with Flynn and that he lied about it immediately after the election. Uh, and there are implications. There are potential implications. But I wonder if the, it does matter the fact that he, this is during the transition, not before the transition, that these contexts uh, uh, seem to have taken place.
2: I don't think it matters. Um, first, um, clearly, um, uh, Michael Flynn lied. He perjured himself. At least he says he perjured himself. And the judge is going to ask him, "Is it true? Did you lie? Did you perjure himself?" The judge will ask that question before he uh, accepts the, um, the, the guilty plea. Uh, second, um, he. Um, it was on a subject which is very much under discussion, namely, Russian interference with the election. At that point, Flynn was a very high official; he wasn't in a seat director yet. He was very integral in the, in part of the uh, the Trump campaign. So I don't think it matters much.
0: Let me just ask you one other thing, because we've also gotten the news. Um, our own Bloomberg Views, Eli Lake, put out um, a column, a story. And Jared Kushner, of course, President Trump's son-in-law and advisor, said to have told former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn to contact foreign ambassadors and foreign ministers of countries on the U.N. Security Council, and that includes Russia. This is citing two former unidentified officials from the Trump transition team. Put that on top of the Flynn news, and what, is that, what does that also tell you?
2: Well, we'll see. Um, yeah. that's, all that indicates some um, that You know, whether there could be fire. We all Mm -hmm. know whether smoke is often fire. Mueller is very professional. He'll follow the facts. And so we'll see whether that new information leads Mueller to um, maybe bring an indictment uh, or go to grand jury or commit some other uh, criminal action. We'll just have to wait and see.
0: Right. And we know Mueller's very methodical, often starts at the bottom and works his way up. So, you're right, stay tuned. I do also want to talk to you a little bit about uh, tax overhaul that's making its way, uh, the Senate plan. We've heard uh, Mitch McConnell saying that uh, he expects to have the votes, the process uh, underway on the Senate floor. Uh, you're very familiar to this process. When you look at what you've heard so far out of lawmakers is this a middle-class tax cut? Is this good for America? Is this good for the economy?
2: Well, first, I'm not surprised um, that um, uh, Mitch McConnell has the votes. Now, this is this is an existential imperative for the public they get legislation passed this year. Um, if they don't, they face a very deep defections or losses in 2018. Um, basically, if you look at this vote, um, it, it is bill. It's um, borrowing about $1 trillion for a very modest tax cut for biblical America, but for a major tax cut for corporations and wealthy Americans. It's borrowing a trillion for a tax cut. I don't think that's good policy. Back in 86, I was on the committee in 86, 1986, when we passed uh, tax reform. I can tell you we had three rules there, which were very good. Number one, deficit neutral. The bill had a of committee deficit neutral. The senator one offered an amendment to cutting taxes. That amendment had to also find offsetting revenue. Number two was totally bipartisan. Jim Baker and Republican White House worked with Danny Roskinkowski over in the House. It was very bipartisan. And third, we had a lot of hearings, a lot of meetings. It mm-hmm. was a way to try to figure out how to get reform, and it was true reform. That's another difference.
1: So yesterday okay. we talked to a, a guy, the kind of person I would think would have some influence in this process, uh, even behind the scenes, if not in front of uh, hearings and so on, uh, Ben Watkins, the director of bond finance for the state of Florida. Not that you know Ben Watkins, but this is a guy who knows the bo- municipal bond business. And said so there are some particulars in these bills that could really hurt the municipal bond market, and make it difficult for towns and cities and villages to borrow money. He can't get his senators to pick up the phone. He's written his congressman. He can't get them to pick up the phone. He works in government, state government. Is that atypical for the process?
0: And we just got about 30 seconds here.
2: Yeah, well, I, yeah, the vision you're referring to is a limitation on interest expense. and That's going to make it a bit difficult for municipalities to issue bonds. But second, um, not really typical when there's a real bipartisan effort. It will be more typical when it's very partisan.
1: Um, I think we can all agree this has been very partisan.
0: Well, good to get some time with you once again, um, Ambassador Baucus. We really do appreciate it. Max Baucus, former U.S. Senator and uh, U.S. Ambassador to China under President Obama, uh, of course, Democratic Senator from the state of Montana, joining us uh, on the phone from the nation's capital. The news flow, fast and furious, on this Friday.
3: You can't touch this. You can't touch this.
1: Well, can they touch our votes? And who's touching them after all? Voting machines. What's the risk of hacking? Congressman Will Hurd joins us right now from Texas's 23rd District, San Antonio to El Paso and other cool weather spots. Not so much, Congressman Heard. Glad to have you on. Uh, talk to me about this investigation into voting machine hacking. Uh, what's, what's, the, what's the most realistic fear here?
4: I think the most realistic fear is what happens when an outside actor like Russian intelligence tries to erode trust in our systems. When it comes to manipulating the vote counting machines, um, it's still incredibly difficult, um, even though some of the software on, on these machines may, you know, may have some vulnerabilities. There's over 10,000 different um, election um, precincts in, in this country and you know, there are other there ways to protect a vote than just the digital defenses or the software that's on the system. And and those are still some robust, um, those are robust processes that are in place. And but we still need to be doing everything we can. Um, we shouldn't be using machines that don't have a auditable, um, you know, uh, track on their votes. And uh, getting getting away from that is uh, is probably a, a best practice. Um, but we also need to be thinking about the covert you know, influence or the disinformation that uh, a nation state could do to try to erode trust in, in, in the in the aftermath of an election.
0: Uh- Interesting story over the summer uh, that talked about how it took computer hackers less than two hours to break into the U.S. voting machines. Uh, It was the annual DEFCON computer security uh, conference. This was put out by, uh, I think, the Register and some different reports, um, you know, to kind of bring light to this. My question for you, though, is who's responsible financially to make sure that our voting machines are up to snuff and secure? Is it the federal government? Is it states?
4: It's the states. Um, voting is a, a responsibility of, of state governments. And so the election administrators, it's it states and, and, and that it devolves even further down to many of the counties. And so the election administrator in the county, um, the state, the the elections administrator of the state, usually the secretary of state, um, this is their primary responsibility. So we should be asking these questions to governors and and local governments as well to make sure that they're providing the kind of resources to have robust um, defenses around our, 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 our vote counting machines. Uh, but the federal government does have a role. And um, we, we've shown this in the past. Uh, we're work- DHS is, has, has an important role to play. They can do security assessments of these systems, usually the back-ends. So you have the, you have the machine where you go in and go vote, and that tabulates the votes at that location, at the fire house mm-hmm. or the school where you go vote. And then you have the back-ends that, um, that does the aggregate. And so DHS is looking at that. DHS also sends people to do two-week security reviews. Um, to make sure that they're looking at all the right ways to defend this.
0: I guess I'm just wondering because, I mean, a lot of times machines that are being used in various municipalities or, uh, you know, in states, 10, 12, they're old. Uh, And so they're not what's needed. And and we had stories earlier this year about states kind of scrambling to upgrade their aging voting machines. So uh, that's why I'm curious if the government needs to have some say providing the necessary funding.
4: Yeah. It, it, look, it, we, it, it, it's everybody's responsibility. Ultimately, it is the sole responsibility of the state. Federal government has a role. And, and I was there in, in Las Vegas at DEFCON mm. at the Voting Village when all those machines got hacked. And um, they were not, you know, it, these were not the most sophisticated of hackers either. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so when you get your hands on, on that machine, um, you, know, you, you, you give me any time and access, I'm going to get into it. There's no such thing as an impenetrable device. Um, but the key is that we're able to have an audit trail. Right? That's why these optical scan where you actually fill out a, a ballot and you run it through a machine and it calculates it, mm-hmm. you have an artifact after that vote that um, if there is some question, you can go back and, and hand count. Um, and that's that's um, you know a, a fallback um, to ensure that we trust the you know the, the actual vote that is tabulated.
1: So I've got to ask you just a minute left here. Given the news of the day of Michael Flynn's guilty plea, given what you know about the possibility of hacking in the uh, of Russian hacking of machines and of the actual influence that we know about of Russia trying to influence the elections, um, what do you make of of the guilty plea by uh, General Flynn today?
4: Well, I, I think the guilty um, plea was lying to the FBI, and I don't know what exactly the the actual lie was. Um, you know, I, I have some ideas, but I haven't looked into that. Um, the Russians did not touch the vote counting machines. The the vote in our last election you was, sure? went off very uh, I, I, absolutely. Um, DHS um, Secretary Jay Johnson has made that made that very clear it's when he It's about fifteen he, seconds left. Congress, um, and but but. Are the Russians trying to influence our election elections? Yes. And we have to counter that disinformation and we gotta have a strategy in order to do that, and we don't have one right now.
1: Great stuff. Congressman Will Hurd from Texas uh, joining us on the phone. All
3: right. Great
0: song. Um, another jam-packed day full of news that uh, could be, should be, is worrying investors, although they don't seem as worried as they did a little bit earlier in the session, much of it coming out of Washington. As I mentioned, financial markets reacting to that news on Michael Flynn and watching the progression of the tax overhaul plans. So that might beg the question, what is really on the minds of investors and their financial advisors? Are they worried? John Moninger is a is uh, managing director at Eaton Vance. Firm has over $422 billion in assets under management. John Monninger, uh joining us on the phone from Boston. You're out with your quarterly, John, a top-of-the-mind index, top-of-mind index. What is that, and who do you guys talk to?
5: Yeah, thank you, Carol. Thanks for having us on today. Yeah, yeah. We, we talk to a 1,000 financial advisors every quarter. And they are a cross-section of advisors across the different channels of, of what they serve, independent advisors, RAs, wirehouse advisors and the like. And the intent is to try to get an understanding of what's on the mind of them and their clients. And what continues to uh, jump up to the top of the list continues to be this fear of volatility, this fear that there's something coming, even though as we both know, the markets itself haven't really been all that volatile, right? The VIX would suggest otherwise, but it's this fear of something's gonna drop next and it's centered maybe around the tax reform is one good example that it's, we're seeing today. It's
0: certainly been, I feel like a little bit more volatile as of late. If you take a look at the last week or so,
5: no, no doubt about it. And I think there, certainly, there's a lot of volatility around what's going on with tax reform. In fact, what was most interesting in the survey this quarter, yeah, you know, we're looking for volatility. We're interested in income. We want to know what's in the mind around taxes. So let's talk about taxes for a minute. Uh, it had the highest increase we've seen yet in the survey, uh, lar- largely coming into uh, what's going on today with the tax reform and what the, uh, what that bill might look like. And so if you ask them what's on their mind, these you year tax reform clearly. But specifically behind that are things like concentrated stocks. We've seen the markets doing really well. We have folks that are sitting on concentrated positions in their own companies more than ever than we've seen in a long time. Tax inefficient mutual funds are another one that jumps at the top of the list. And then finally, just given where the Market levels are the gains in their portfolios. What do they do with them? Uh, if they were to sell today, what happens? You know, there's certainly a, lot, a large amount of fear about the impact that will have on them. And do I do it today or do I wait until next year? Is the big question. John, do you? Do
1: you Sorry, John. Do you, do you like the VIX as a, a indicator of volatility? I mean, it only measures one thing, and we tend to use it for all kinds of volatility. But I was really struck by the move in the VIX today after the news of uh, the guilty plea. Uh, by General Flynn, and the notion that this may go higher,
5: yeah I mean I think it's a decent indicator there there 's a few of them out there yeah the question is how does that impact the bond market vix doesn 't really measure that, so there's other index, index you know uh, indexes you can use for that type of approach' Such so as? It's a decent gauge for it. the cape index is one that the the bond folks tend to use, and it has a similar uh, approach to it, and so I think there's other ways to measure it um myself, I, I, when I look at the investor, and what do they care about around losing money? And so they're not worried about the futures market, which is what the VIX is measuring, but they're worried about is Am I going to lose capital today? And am I going to lose capital in the next six months? And although it's a decent uh, gauge, it doesn't tell you really the full story, right? And it's a, it's a coincident indicator. It's telling you exactly as it's occurring, not necessarily uh, it, it, as much as you like to think it's an advanced indicator. It doesn't really give you much advanced notice. So
0: right, right there can be sentiment indicators. God, I'm worried. I feel this way, blah, 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 And then there are action indicators. So does this, right. is this more of a sentiment indicators and may not necessarily uh, really tell us what, what investors or, you know, what investors are actually doing?
5: Yeah, I think you got to look at flows, right? And so we look at flows all the time, and flows would tell you, and certainly I'll even, I can internalize that here, we're seeing a large amount of money going into more conservative strategies, uh, more than ever. Ladder bond portfolios, global macro strategies, things that are taking risk off the table, and not getting out of the market by any means, but because they're nervous about making that bad decision too, but doing things that are a little more defensive in light of where the market levels are today. So we continue to see great growth in those areas. And then finally, around the tax issue, we've seen... Uh, a tremendous amount of growth around tax strategies, strategies that harvest losses, strategies that defer gains, all those type of things we've seen in a tremendous amount of growth in in uh, not, not only the full year, but especially most recently.
1: I've been so focused on what's going on in the muni market, it's not least of which we did a big broadcast yesterday, um, uh, focused on the muni market. And I wonder, you know, this, this, this massive issuance this month, this may be the biggest biggest month right. since I was in short pants. I mean, this is, you know, this is a big, <laughs> big month of issuance. And I wonder what that means for that tax avoidance strategy uh, going forward, these big changes in the tax law coming.
5: Yeah, and that's actually a really good point. I would say our portfolio managers are pointing exactly to this. So big issuance is expected here in the month of December, uh, maybe a record potentially, uh, numbers as high as 50, billion, $60 billion in issuance uh, on numbers that you typically see in the 30s. Uh, the question is what happens in, in the coming year? Do you see the supply dry up? Depends on how the tax bill goes. There's a couple points in the tax bill, if, if approved, that would actually lower issuance quite dramatically, which actually can create a technical opportunity in the muni bond market. So I think there's folks really paying attention to on the muni side on what ends up happening here could drive a real actually opportunity longer term, uh, really say longer term, in the next quarter uh, than what we're seeing really in December, which will certainly be flooded with supply. You might see some pressure in the muni bonds uh, that you're sitting on today.
0: What are the market indicators that you guys talk most about that you think are the most important in terms of really determining uh, where the equity markets, for that matter, where the fixed income markets are going?
5: Yeah, I think there's, there's, a, there's a few indicators that folks are looking at. Obviously, you're, you're, they're paying attention to the indexes all the time. They're paying attention to, you know, on the equity side, a good example would be they're looking at profit cycles, looking where the profits are coming in, earnings growth is going to matter, and valuations. In fact, if I tie it back to the survey, you know, the, what, what advisors are particularly paying attention to has been valuations. I think they're fearful a little bit where we are today. They're nervous that they're going to make the wrong decision, that if I get out now, what happens? But all of them would agree, I a mean, majority would agree, that markets are are fully valued today, and so they're looking for opportunities and going to places like emerging markets, international, areas where I have better valuations in the market today. Same thing would be true on the, on the bond side is we're going to find value, and if I think of our bond investors uh, here at in Advance, you know, they're really looking for valued opportunities both in the muni market as well as in the, uh, in, in the credit markets.
0: All right, got it. We got to run. Hey, John, thank you so much. Have a nice weekend. John Moninger, he is managing director at Eaton Vance. They've got over $422 billion in assets under management.
1: I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Hey, How
5: about you let me drive?
1: Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going
5: to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving.
6: Drive on.
5: Excuse me. I want to
4: drive.
3: Just drive, so
4: Just drive baby.
0: Our next guest says investor sentiment is a red flag for us. Here to explain in our drive to the close, Eric Friedman, Chief Investment Officer at U.S. Bank Wealth Management, on the phone from Raleigh, North Carolina. Eric, nice to have you here. Sentiment, investor sentiment is a red flag. What specifically, in terms of investor sentiment indicators, are you following and why are you concerned?
6: Carol, thanks for having me on. It's really a variety of things It used to really start and really be rooted in equities. And so the traditional indicators like the VIX really seem subdued. And it's really crossed into areas like currencies, even commodities. And you think about the fixed income market, just how tight high yield spreads are. So literally across the board, we're seeing this elevated level of complacency. If I can maybe uh, you, know, you know twist twist that phrase a bit, it's mm-hmm. just a, I guess on the positive side, it's been persistent. So it's not like this is a new thing. But the fact that it's really spreading into almost all corners of the market has us a little more concerned. You
1: know, this is the time of year when people start to look at their gains for the year. They compare them to what the S and P has done or the Dow or. Bitcoin or something, I don't know. But when people sort of look at their, you know, not that they're going to make a big change in their portfolio. But when you look at allocations, when you look at your 401k designations, you, you sort of start to think, yeah, I don't want more risk on. I don't know. We've had this big, long move. Is a recession coming? Is this the time for a pro-growth orientation of portfolio?
6: We think it is, Corey, and it's, a, it's an important point you made about this being year-end and what people are thinking about. You know, we have a variety of client types at U.S. Bank, and, and really for the first time in about four or five years, you've seen a contribution from international equities, and it used to have been really just the consistent laggard in the client's portfolio, whether it was EM or developed international really had a persistent lag effect versus U.S. And so I think you're seeing a lot of clients saying, you know, we're actually seeing some kick in finally of that international piece. And so it does feel like in terms of keeping up with the domestic Joneses, if you will, that international has been able to do so. But to your point, we've had this pro-growth stance on for the past 18 months, which has really been helpful for clients. And, and certainly some of that complacency that we're seeing right now does test that thesis There are a number of indicators that suggest that we should keep that pro-growth mantra on, a lot of stuff that we look at proprietarily. So until earnings say something else, until corporate profitability is uh, is perhaps going the other way, we're going to keep that positioning on.
3: So
0: what happens when the market starts to go in the other direction, the stock market down? and folks who've gotten so used to it just going up and up and up despite some slight moves to the downside. What happens when we get into a protracted down cycle? Does everybody run for the exit?
6: Sure. I think that people have uh, great memories still. You know, it's interesting. This business is one of, of sometimes short memories, but I, I do think that uh, that people certainly understand their own risk tolerance, those that have invested for longer than 10 years have had uh, have had several bouts again, not as as many as normal, but have had a couple of significant bouts of of downdraft to at least test their patience with their holdings. But to your point, the last three or four years really have not had a a sort of test, if you will, of one's own risk tolerance. So I do think there could be some weaker hands for the you know the first five or six percent of a down move could lead to a you know down eight nine ten, but still our readings across the globe. Again, I think it's generic to probably use that phrase synchronized global growth. It really has been used, I think, too much. But um, unfortunately, our data uh, suggests that we should keep using it because that's really what we're still seeing. So I do think there could be, again, with some noise, maybe a couple of percentage points that are the weaker hands needing to, to flesh themselves out a bit. But Still, I think that, that underpinning is still there across uh, across most risk assets, and again, people have uh, I think been at least tested in the last 10 years. Really, not in the last five, though.
1: So, as we look at this too, I, I, you know, fundamentals ultimately are, you know are made aren't going to be the driver of the market, but they're going to be the support of a market. And with this kind of rise, what do you see when you look about the, let's call equity fundamentals in the U.S.
6: Corey, the, the biggest thing that we're seeing is an acceleration of earnings, and um, and I think that's that's obviously important, and it's not and like we, I'm that's sorry. Just theme. to be
1: clear, I always ask when people talk about earnings. are You talking about earnings per share, or you, which can be affected by many things, uh, spending levels, uh, tax rates, uh, buybacks, or are you talking about net income?
6: So, not to sound like a Bloomberg advertisement, I'm actually using Bloomberg operating earnings, which I, I think you know we use as, as part of you know, one of the three measures that we look at, which we think is, is a really clean way of looking at uh, at really at the index level what's going on. I think you've on. got so, it. I think you have to yeah. because
1: there's there's so much noise with tax effective tax rates versus actual taxes paid, and share buybacks versus you know EPS. You know, the companies like IBM that see uh, earnings per share rise while earnings decline.
6: That's right. The the enumerator, is certainly uh, can be muddy uh, because of factors like you just laid out, Corey. So our take has been looking at at fundamentals. What are we seeing just at, at, at obviously, headline earnings growth? But one of the things that's interesting right now, and in fact, even on a day like today, not to be too short term, but you've had this really persistent growth bias across the domestic equity space where you wanted me to focus. And what we've seen even in the past week has been, I'm not going to call it a full-fledged rotation, but at least some support from some of the more lagging sectors. So areas like financials, areas like uh, energy, areas even like, uh, like telecom services, which have mm-hmm. had a tough go. So I think that fundamentally you're still seeing uh, earnings growth, which is great, but you're also starting to see at the more micro level a bit of participation from other sectors that have been really left behind in, in at least the last uh, 6, 12, 18 months.
0: Eric Friedman, thank you. Chief Investment Officer at U.S. Bank Wealth Management on the phone in Raleigh, North Carolina, on this Friday and, afternoon.
1: And native of upstate New York.
0: Uh, good to know. Move around. Motion creates the motion.
4: I feel the earth
0: move on my feet. You move like they do. I've never seen anyone
2: move that fast. Shake. Shake. All right, people, let's move like we've got a purpose.
3: On, on over. Something's called movers and shakers. They cost a little more, but that name cracked me up.
2: On oh, a on. Oh, let's go. Bloomberg Markets, movers and shakers with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio.
0: All right, everybody. Let's get to your movers and shakers on this Friday afternoon. Carol Master, along with Corey Johnson. Let's start with the S and P five hundred, as I like to do. S and P five hundred. I think it's a good thing. <laughs> I think it's a good. I thing think it's the
1: best indication of what's happening with big companies and their trading every day.
0: Especially since so many people, right, are tracking the S and P five hundred. All the ETFs and index funds. They've been putting more and more money uh, specifically into these funds. I do. I agree with you. I
1: don't promise to stop mentioning the Dow, but I probably should.
0: One hundred ninety nine names in the S and P five hundred higher today. Three hundred five lower, one unchanged. Uh, what are, I do also though, you know, want to mention the automakers. We didn't really talk about this, but we did get car sales uh, for the month of November as it's the first day of December. Honda Motor and Ford Motor reported bigger U.S. sales gains than expected for last month as Black Friday promotions and year-end discounting uh, brought a bunch of buyers into showrooms. I'm just looking at uh, some of the big U.S. Uh, automakers. GM shares, uh, they were down seven-tenths of a percent, forty-two seventy-nine a share. Ford, though, up about half a percent. Corey, at 1250 58 a share. Let me just look at GM year over year. Um, they were down 3% when uh, estimates were looking for about 1.5% decline. And Ford, we're looking at a gain of 7%. And that looks like that was double than what uh, analysts were forecasting.
1: Biggest loser in the S&P today? Yeah. Ulta Beauty.
0: The, this one has been among the movers and shakers, many times. Uh, of the it's last a stock few that
1: has gotten racked. It was as high as a uh, three hundred fourteen dollars, three hundred fifteen dollars a share. Yep. it's traded as low as one eighty eight in the last three months or so. Up a lot the last few days uh, before earnings. Earnings came out. Oops. Should have been down. Uh, bad quarter for these guys. Stock was down 4%. Analysts out in full force talking about third quarter results and the forecast. Uh, and interestingly, a lot of the people who had buys on the stock are trying to defend it. But the the, uh, the hold raters are pointing out flaws in the report. Uh, and the majority of the analysts out there are uh, uh, arguing to get away from the stock. Um, and they they blame the hurricanes for a bad quarter. Uh, they there were some other issues with this company. Gross margins missed their plan for the third time in four quarters. First time since 2014, the company has not raised estimates after mm. a quarter. Um, and while you know they refer to it as a solidly fundamental business, uh, there were certainly uh, issues here with these guys blaming hurricanes uh, for the sale of beauty products. Interesting though, I don't know if you saw this great story in the New York Times saying that uh, the women's cosmetic sales are having fantastic record sales across the industry because of the selfie. But women, <laughs> uh, young women want to be made up at all times. To be ready for that Instagram moment, to be ready for that selfie, and that—that's driving sales of cosmetics to record levels. However, Ulta Beauty, which had been benefiting from this, uh, is no longer
0: well. There's also lots of videos if you go online that you know can kind of give tutorials uh, to folks on how to to do different makeup trends and makeup applications. You know, it's interesting uh, don't I
1: know it? You're telling me.
0: <laughs> I thought you got that um, shading thing down right. Um, Ulta Beauty. Fifty though, shades, maybe. Fifty shades. No. No. Ulta Beauty was up 38 percent last year. It was up. 45% in 2015, 32% higher in 2014. So it has been on such a run. I keep thinking, I wonder if like Amazon's going to look at this company, right? To go into beauty products,
1: if they want to be in it's retail, but I don't know who knows if they want to?
0: Um, yeah, Mattel. I just want to mention that's the actually Mattel. I think is your number one decliner in the S and P five
1: hundred. I think Ulta's oh, they, number they two. They switched right at the right at the last yeah. of the, the close.
0: Mattel, uh, just quick check uh, down about five and a half percent down a buck seventeen twenty six a share. The stock in twenty seventeen, you know, has been beaten up down about thirty seven percent. There's been speculation about you know Mattel and Hasbro getting together. Um, but uh, for whatever reason, I don't see any specific news uh, on this uh, stock today. But um, it's the number one decliner. So I don't know whether maybe investors are thinking maybe it won't happen. I don't know. Anyway, I just thought it was interesting to note.
5: All right, Dave, you're up. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Dave.
2: Wilson, where are you? Wilson!
5: Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? We're going for a price on Wilson. Open up
2: the door. It's Dave. Who? Dave. Hey, Ms.
3: Dave Wilson's with us right now with his Bloomberg, and that would be Foundation Medicine. Corey, it's a company that brings genetic analysis to cancer care. The company offers genomic tests that diagnose people's tumors and then matches up patients with potential therapies and drug trials. Foundation Medicine was founded in two thousand nine. It's been publicly traded since twenty thirteen. The ticker is FMI. Now, the shares struggled to remain above their initial public offering price of $18 until this year when they took off. Foundation Medicine surge gained momentum a month ago after third-quarter results were well-received. Today, the stock rose to a record after the company's latest test was doubly blessed by U.S. regulators. The Food and Drug Administration approved the sale of the test, called Foundation One. At the same time, the agency in charge of Medicare made a preliminary decision to cover the test for those insured by the health plan. Foundation Medicine said the test would be introduced after the Medicare agency's final decision. You put those two rulings together, and the company's shares gained almost 18%. And that was the biggest advance since that earnings report back at the beginning of November.
0: Check it's it. Drama. Did you check it out? That stock is up uh, about 254% this year.
1: What a run. Tremendous
0: run, run yeah. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud,
1: or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV.